This is an AMI podcast. I'm Joyita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. An ally is someone who supports the cause of a marginalized group. The ally tries to unpack their privilege and learn from the experience of the marginalized group. The ally also attempts to amplify the voices of members of the marginalized group. Well, I think that about covers it. But I hate to say it, if only life were that simple. Actually, when one considers being an ally, say for people with disabilities, it's not just a perfect cocktail of good intentions and the right actions. Just precisely why is someone choosing to be an ally? Is allyship motivated by guilt about having privilege in the world? Maybe the sense of allyship stems from pity or just wanting to help out. Or maybe allyship comes from a place of understanding that various forms of injustice are in and that for each of us, the pursuit of our liberation is tied in with the liberation of others. Today, we discuss being a disability ally. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. I'm Joyita Gupta. My guest today is Emily Ladau, who is a disability activist writer who works in the field of communications. So a while back, Emily wrote a book and it completely flew under my radar. So I'm really excited to be able to welcome Emily and to talk about her book, Demystifying Disability, What to Know, What to Say, and How to Be an Ally. Emily, welcome to the program. It's so great to have you. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so thrilled that the book finally got onto your radar. <laughs> I am too, and I feel really bad. It's, um, it's one of those books that is so incredibly well-researched and so informative that even if you've been immersed in disability activism for, geez, I don't know, years, decades, whatever, uh, it's a really good, let's get back to basics kind of book that helps you deconstruct a lot of the concepts and ideas that people with disabilities have been talking about for a really long time. So let me ask you this, where we recognize that people with disabilities are everywhere and disability is around us just about all the time. Why do we need to demystify something that seems so commonplace? It's so interesting to think about the fact that disability really is so commonplace, and yet we are so afraid to talk about it. There are more than 1 billion people around the world who have disabilities. And where I live in the United States, one in four adults has a disability. This is not a niche issue. And yet we treat it as such because we don't talk about it in the media. We don't talk about it in school curricula. We are not actively having conversations about disability. We're treating it as something that needs to be pushed to the side or worse, we're just ignoring it entirely. And so for so many people, disability does still feel like a mystery because we're not having open honest conversations about disability simply as another part of the human experience and another part of human diversity. So tell me a little bit about the book itself. If one were to open the book or listen to the audiobook, what would they find? I really wanted to create 
a primer and a conversation starter for people who may be curious about disability, but may not know exactly where to begin. So it touches on media representation and etiquette and history. It talks about culture. It talks about language. It touches on many of the key issues that really help to provide a background in how to have conversations about disability and how to understand and think about disability and in how to engage with the disability community. But my goal was never for it to be the Bible on disability or the encyclopedia of disability. The point is really for it to be one person's offering into a much broader conversation that we need to be having. And so I always acknowledge when I'm talking about the book that I am a white woman. I have a physical disability. I have the privilege of being able to communicate verbally. And so I talk about disability informed by that very specific lens. Mm -hmm. And you will find that that lens is what informs how I've written the book. And Mm -hmm. so I always want people to recognize that it is just one offering in a much broader landscape of books and information about disability. But my hope is that it's really a starting point for people who have questions, but aren't sure where to go and feel like they need a safe place to land so they can ask those questions. The book may be a starting point, but it also reads, um, I hope you don't take this the wrong way, but it does kind of read like a who's who in the disability community. And I really wanted to ask you about the research that went into a book like this, because you talk to so many people, you quote from so many books, you bring in so many definitions, you collate so many ideas. How did that research, how did, how was researching the book for you? My priority was always to make sure that it wasn't about me even though, of course, it's something that I'm writing, but I wanted to be able to bring as many perspectives as I could into the conversation. And goodness knows there was even room for more, but Mm. I interviewed so many people and I went to so many different sources. And my goal was really to acknowledge that there are so many people who have done the work, who are doing the work, who have come before me, who are alongside me right now, who have created pathways for these kinds of conversations that we need to be having about disability, who have been doing the teaching and the educating and having these important conversations. And so researching the book was a labor of love for me and really an opportunity to dive even deeper than I already had into an understanding of disability history and disability rights and disability culture. And there is so, so much more that could have been shared, but I am so lucky that there were so many people who were willing to talk to me, that there were so many first person accounts of really powerful historical moments. Mm -hmm. And I had absolutely the best time just being able to dive in and offer people a way to get to know the disability community a little better. You've been a a well-established activist uh, yourself, and a lot of people know you and you know a lot of people. In researching the book, was there something that took you by surprise? I really appreciate you asking that question. And I think that 
I am constantly learning about disability just because I have a disability doesn't mean that I am the sole expert on the subject by any stretch of the imagination. And I would not say that anything really surprised me per se, because I have always known that the disability community has an incredibly rich and robust history behind us. But something that I realized is no matter how much research you put in, no matter how much you try to look outside yourself, there is always going to be someone or something or some experience that is missing from the broader conversation. And so for me, I surprised myself most by really having to reckon with my own points where I was missing information, points where I needed to fill in the gaps. And, you know, even with the book having been out in the world now, I know that it is far from perfect, that there are people whose stories that I missed, that there are parts of history that I wasn't able to include or didn't think to include. And so it's really just a reminder that the learning doesn't stop just because you are part of a particular identity group. Uh, I'm glad you brought up the disability history aspect of it because that was a really informative chapter. And yet, um, and I thought I would ask you about this at the interview, um, and yet there was no mention of uh, Helen Keller. Was that intentional because Helen Keller has gotten so much screen time? Or what happened there? Was it was she, Helen Keller was the one person I was expecting to, to hear about or read about in the disability history chapter, and yet there was no Helen Keller. Yeah, I think that for me, the goal was really to bring light to figures who perhaps aren't discussed as much when it comes to disability history and representation. Mm -hmm. And Helen Keller certainly is, you know, a powerful figure uh, when it comes to representing deafness and blindness and, you know, paved the way in so many ways. Um, but also it wasn't really an intentional choice not to include her. It was just kind of something where I thought, let's go a little bit more off the beaten path. Let's talk more about um, some of the other disabled people who we don't necessarily know as having had disabilities. Let's talk about some of the more recent figures who maybe have flown under the radar, but are doing the really strong grassroots activist work. And, you know, also um, in thinking about it now, Helen Keller too also has a uh, quite a, a bit of controversy behind her in terms of um, some of her beliefs around eugenics and things like that. So she wasn't my go-to when it came to disability history, but uh, there is some, you know, really, really great scholarship about her out there. And there's uh, an incredible documentary that came out about her recently uh, that, you know, dives into her role in sort of the broader uh, disability movement and her personal history. So I think my goal was really to kind of cover the people who haven't gotten as much airtime, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, speaking of airtime, you know, one of the things that was really interesting was that you, I, I listened to the audiobook. I sped it up a little bit at 1.5 times the speed. So I got through it quite quickly, actually. <laughs> and um, I have to say, it's really nice that you were able to narrate your 
your audiobook yourself. And I like to talk to people about what that process was like for them, because you mentioned just before we were recording that you have a podcast, but reading out an audiobook or developing an audiobook is, I would imagine, a very different experience from hosting a podcast. Tell me a little bit about that process. Oh, this is a fun question. And it was an incredible experience because I had spent so long staring at the words on the page and I had spent so long thinking about the words as I wrote them down and then to see that process through and to be able to bring the words to life by reading them out loud was really an incredible process for me. And also it's something that is particularly dear to my heart because I get very frustrated by the conversations that say that uh, listening to an audiobook is not really reading. Mm-hmm. And I like to remind people that there's no such thing as one way to do anything. And audiobooks create a world of accessibility for so many people. And so being able to actually contribute to that process by reading my own book and getting to make that connection with the people who listen to it and to have them know, you know, what the inflections of my voice would be as I was putting the words to the page and what I was thinking exactly and hearing that nuance was really a powerful thing. So I really enjoyed that process. Although I will say it was two very long days of recording. And uh, after all that talking, I was like, whew, I think I just need to be quiet for a while. Now, I hope you'll forgive me. Uh, this is a bit of a spoiler for the audiobook, but we don't just hear your voice in the audiobook. We hear from two very special people, your dad and mom, with very brief excerpts reading their own words in the audiobook. Tell me a little bit about working with your parents, not just on the audiobook, but on the manuscript and, and how they've been there for you from day one on this roller coaster ride, which is your life. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you we're definitely paying attention because yes, the, the book is dedicated to them. And, you know, I, I thank them profusely in the acknowledgements and they came with me to uh, record and got to read quotes from themselves, which I thought was just such a, a fun way to bring them into the process. But they were part of the process before the book was even a, a twinkle in my eye, to be honest with you. Um, they have always been there for me and they have supported me as I have gone on this journey to figure out what it means to be a disability activist, to be an educator about disability. And as I've been forging that path, they have been behind me in that. And it's especially unique, I think, because my mother has the same disability that I do. And so Mm -hmm. we share that experience. And although my dad does not share that particular experience, he's always been so incredibly supportive of all that, you know, my mom and I have been doing to navigate our own identity and history and culture and becoming really proud of who we are. And so getting to have them as part of the, uh, the book process was really incredible. My mom was basically my editor in chief, if you will, you know, going over the manuscript with me and closely reading and talking everything through. And my dad was always there to bounce ideas off of and honestly listen to me complain sometimes because 
you know, what person doesn't complain when they're working through a big project. But at the end of the day, getting to include them in that audiobook recording process was just my way of saying, you know, we all made it to the end of this process and I'm glad to have had them as part of it. Um, I think we want to sort of spend a little bit of time talking about what it means to be an ally to the disability community. And you spend a bit of time on, on this in the book as well. How do you define allyship? I really want people to understand that ally is not just a title that you give yourself. So I think there are some people who think you can put a name tag on yourself that says, hi, my name is ally, or you get a gold star that says ally on it. And, you know, you've done a good deed and that makes you a good ally. But for me, allyship is really a verb. It's about action. It's about the ways that we can be supportive of one another and recognize that we all still have learning to do, that none of us are going to be, you know, this perfect model ally, but rather that it's an ongoing process. Uh, Although it's cliche, I say that it's a journey and not a destination because there is no such thing as achieving the pinnacle of allyship. It's it's something that we can work on a little bit each day by thinking about our language, by being mindful about how we engage, by thinking about the space that we're taking up and who we're amplifying and how we're engaging online. And, you know, there's so many different facets to it. And I recognize that that can feel overwhelming, but that's why I really try to point to it as a learning process. And I also try to remind people that even if you yourself have a disability or if you're part of another marginalized group that does not absolve you of the responsibility of also being an ally to other people. And so even though I am a disabled woman, that doesn't mean that I don't have work to do to be an ally to other disabled people and to other minority groups. And so it's just a constant process. That's how I I think about allyship. I kind of batted this around in the opening essay, but how important is it to think about why you're being an ally? Because you could be motivated by that charity impulse or pity or just, you know, feeling a lot of guilt around having not to experience all the ableism and barriers that come with living with a disability. And, you know, I'm an able-bodied person. I have, I can get to coast. Um, is it important to, to consider why it is that you might want to be an ally? There are so many motivating factors that drive people to want to be an ally. And obviously my top priority is that we are treating each other with kindness and respect and we are doing right by each other. And I'll never be able to 100% know what somebody's motivation is. But my hope is that you'll really take some time to reflect and to think critically about why it is that you want to be an ally. Because it's true sometimes if we feel this immense guilt that we don't have a particular experience of another marginalized person, or if we feel bad for that person and we feel like perhaps they could be our good deed for the day, you know, then your heart is not really in the right place when it comes to allyship. And I wouldn't really call that allyship. I would just call that trying to be a good person with some kind of background motivators. And So allyship to me is first and foremost about taking the time to consider why it is 
that you want to do right by a group of people. And it could very well initially come from a place of guilt, of charity, of seeing disabled people, for example, as tragic or pitiful, because that's how we're socialized to think. But my hope is that if that's the starting point for you, it's not the ending point for you. It's a place of growth for you. And it's an opportunity to learn and to recognize your own biases that you hold. I wanted to invite you in the few minutes that we have left to read an excerpt from your book. Uh, Emily, what are you going to share with us today? I would love to share a little bit from the early part of the book and just talk about my philosophy when it comes to how we can all make the world a little bit more inclusive and what it means to do that work of educating and what I hope people will take away from uh, those with disabilities who do that work. All of us, non-disabled and disabled people alike, have more to learn about how to make the world a better, more accessible, more inclusive place. So how do we do this? There's a philosophy I've come to embrace that informs everything I do. If the disability community wants a world that's accessible to us, then we must make ideas and experiences of disability accessible to the world. How can we expect understanding and acceptance of disability if we aren't willing to share our insights and our stories? I recognize this isn't always a popular line of thought among many disabled people. Educating others about the nuances of your daily life is a heck of a lot of work, and it can take an emotional toll, especially when there's pushback or the people who need to learn just won't listen. It makes sense not to want to live our lives moving from one teachable moment to the next. We'd prefer to just live our lives, period. However, the reality is that we're not quite there yet. Whether I'm out and about in the world at large or just aimlessly scrolling through social media, I'm on high alert for ableism, stereotypes, stigma, and discrimination toward disabled people. And there is a lot of it to be found. So for now, I believe that offering honest and sincere guidance and conversation remains a key part of the path forward for the disability community. That's how progress has been made by the powerhouse disability activists who have come before me. It's how we will continue forward. And if one person who reads this book thinks better of using disability as a slur or insult or calls their representatives to advocate for a disability issue or adds a ramp to the entrance of their shop, then we're moving in the right direction. That's great, Emily. Just in about 30 seconds, can you tell us where we can get a copy of your book? Yes, absolutely. So you can absolutely find it on Amazon, although I highly recommend supporting your local bookshop if you can. Um, you can also go to my website, which is emilyladow.com, uh, and there's a page there about the book, and it offers multiple options for you to purchase it. It also offers uh, access to the audiobook option or the digital option, and there's also a free plain language translation to make the book more cognitively accessible for everyone. That's amazing. Emily, thank you so much for writing the book, first of all, and also for speaking to to me about it today, because I learned a lot just from reading the book. So thanks for writing it and putting it out in the world and for chatting about it today. Thank you so much for having me. That was Emily Ladau, the author of Demystifying Disability, What to Know, What to Say, and How to Be an Ally. 
Let me bring in Nisreen Abdul-Majid to get Nisreen's impression of Emily Ladau's interview and book. Nisreen, what stood out for you in that conversation? She really highlighted on what it means to be an ally in general and not just I mean, it is a selfless act. It's not just, you know, making you feel good about yourself, getting a gold star. Um, This is, you know, doing the quote unquote right thing uh, to be an ally with the disability community. Yeah, I liked, I've always sort of thought of allyship as a deeply political act in that you're not just in it for yourself. You're not just there so you can give yourself a pat on the back, but you're really kind of thinking about the systemic reasons uh, why some people have had so much privilege in the world and others have been left behind in very systemic ways. What really, uh, one of the things that really resonated with me in that conversation, and I'm kind of sad because I didn't get to talk about it with with Emily during the interview, but she covered it off in that excerpt, is the frustration that I really felt, especially when I was younger, about uh, having to educate people about oh, my disability. Yes. I didn't want to keep oh, yes. going from one teachable moment to the next. I, I, I really didn't think it was my job. My job was to live my life and I had quite a bit going on. Thank you very much. I didn't want to be in a position where I was getting home at the end of the workday, thinking about what I was going to make for dinner, only to have to stop and assuage someone's curiosity. And there's a lot of things in that book about how to ask questions. Uh, when is a good time? How to go about doing it? And I think that it's kind of a two-way street in the because Yes, you know, for a person who is non-disabled, there's a a certain amount of thought that needs to be given to when you ask questions, how you ask those questions, who you ask those questions to. But I do feel that there's something to be said for people with disabilities themselves, myself, yourself, thinking about doing the work of educating uh, people about disabilities in our lived experience. Because to quote that, that excerpt from Emily, we're not there yet. We're not in a world where our disabilities don't matter anymore. Mm -hmm. We should get to a world where it doesn't matter what your disability is. But let's be honest, we're not there yet, but we're inching our way over. Hey, Nasreen, I gotta, we should probably wrap it up here, but it was really good to uh, punt this one around with you. We could have talked quite a bit. Thanks for weighing in on this, on this particular conversation. Oh, no problem. Thank you. Nasreen Abdul-Majid is our technical producer here on the program and Andy Frank is the manager for AMI-audio. Any complaints, compliments or questions, you can always write to feedback at ami.ca or find us on Twitter at AMI-audio. Use the hashtag PulseAMI. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks a lot for listening. Enjoy the rest of your day. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.